0: You know, in spite of the pandemic and everything that we're going through in our world and in our country and all those kind of things, you know, we can rest and rejoice in the truth that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came into this world. He came into this world born as a human being. He lived among men. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was raised on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us, for us. And we know that he is also with us. He is with us because one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. So please turn in your Bible to the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This recorded historical account of the birth of Jesus is probably the most familiar Bible passage in all the Bible. And that's a good thing, because this passage is what Christmas is really all about. You remember in that TV show when Charlie Brown asked in frustration, Isn't there anyone out there who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And Linus responded, Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And Linus recited a portion of this passage of Scripture that we're going to read and look at this morning. Luke chapter 2, beginning at at verse 1, the first verse, the second chapter of Luke. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in their fields, and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then, The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as they had been told. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, I pray for your special blessing upon us this morning, Lord. And I pray that you would give us a special blessing of your presence. Wherever we are, listening or watching, even if it's uh, later in the week, Father, when people listen to the podcast or or watch the live stream father i pray that at the very moment that we are together in this special way father that we would have a special blessing of your presence with us god with us father father i pray that you administer teach one of our hearts and teach one of our needs this morning that you would come with your tender mercies with your love your grace your compassion and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a stark contrast in Luke's historical account of the birth of Jesus. There's the aspirations of Caesar Augustus, a man who would be God. And then there is Jesus, the true God, who became a man. Luke tells us in verse 1 of, of the second chapter, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of the inhabited earth, all the known world at that time. Now, Caesar Augustus' name was Octavian, and Octavian was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar was stabbed to death on the Senate floor, the Senate thought that they had ended his totalitarian populist rule that threatened the republic and threatened their control. But unbeknownst to them, Julius Caesar had secretly named his great-nephew Octavian as his sole heir and successor. And so Rome was plunged into civil war. And Octavian was a born fighter. He was a cruel tyrant. He clawed his way to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And then through his considerable genius and the force of his persona, Octavian gave the empire a solidness that was to endure for centuries. Octavian was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, which means holy, to be revered. Up until Octavian, the name Augustus, or the title Augustus, was reserved exclusively for the gods. This was the first step in making all the subsequent Caesars into gods who were deified and worshipped as gods. In fact, some of the Greek cities in Asia Minor, Minor Day Turkey today, adopted Caesar Augustus' birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of the new year, hailing him as Savior. And one ancient inscription even called Octavian the Savior of the whole world. When Caesar Augustus died, the people comforted themselves by reflecting that Augustus was a god, And that gods do not die. And at the time of Caesar Augustus and for decades to come, Rome enjoyed what was called the Pax Romanus, the Roman peace. The peace that infiltrated and, and included the whole world. The empire knew peace, but it was only because the tyrannical Caesar Augustus had bludgeoned every foe, including the Jews, into submission. No man or woman or boy and girl would say a word against this forced peace without fearfully looking over their shoulder, and men hung on crosses on the thoroughfares leading into major cities, including Jerusalem. And now Caesar's relentless arms stretched out to squeeze its tribute into a tiny village at the far end of the Mediterranean. So take your Bibles again to Luke chapter 2 at verse 4. So it came about that a peasant village carpenter and his expectant teenage bride were forced to travel to his hometown, Bethlehem, to be registered for taxation in this census. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him, and who was with child. In contrast to Caesar Augustus, Joseph and Mary were insignificant nobodies. They were peasants, they were poor, they were uneducated, they were of no account to anybody except to squeeze whatever tribute Rome could extract. And it would have been an absolutely miserable 120-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Mary was full term, and whether she rode a donkey or walked or both, it was an undesired and an unpleasant journey. The The couple traveled in the dust and cold of winter, bearing the distress that Mary would have her first baby far from home, far from her mother, far from anybody and everybody who cared about them. And from what Luke has recorded so far in this chapter, it would be difficult to see the hand of God in these events. It really is a sad and pathetic picture. But Mary understood who she was, and she understood who God was. Turn back a page or two in your Bible to the first chapter of Luke's gospel for a moment. Luke chapter 1 at verse 46. Early on, Mary learned that she was pregnant with the Son of the Most High. In her song of praise, that's in this 46th verse of, of Luke chapter 1, she began with the words, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Then drop down to verse 51 to see what she says here. He has done great deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. Here is the mystery of God's grace. He does not come to the proud. In fact, he brings down the proud. He scatters them. He brings down rulers from their thrones. God does not come to the powerful. The Lord comes to the poor. He comes to the powerless. He comes to the disenfranchised. He did not go to Caesar's household. He did not go to Herod's household. He did not go to the household of Caiaphas, the high priest. But he came to a poor peasant couple in Nazareth spiritually he came to those and he does come to those who are poor in spirit who recognize their need who recognize their helplessness as it is so often things were not as they seem to the world around them the world just doesn't get it they don't get it they don't get Christmas because humble Mary and Joseph were the adoptive father and birth mother The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, Caesar played a part in all of this, but it's not the part he wanted or even was he, he was aware of because we know from Proverbs 21 verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and he takes it wherever he wishes. God turned Caesar's heart to Caesar. He was just proclaiming a census so he could tax and get more money out of people. But God had his purposes because 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah had prophesied. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, even eternity past. His days, he has come. God was in control and orchestrated these events to get his son to be born in Bethlehem. The poor couple's forced journey to Bethlehem to register to pay taxes would set the stage for the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. They appeared to be helpless pawns caught in the movements of secular history. But every move was under the hand of the Almighty God. The baby Mary carried was not a Caesar, a man who had become a God, but far greater wonder, the true God who had become a man. And then in verse 6 of of Luke chapter 2. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end the simplicity of this story is almost astounding this is all the bible says about the actual birth experience the actual birth of christ and of course we like to fill in the details and we like to have christmas plays and those kind of things we We like it when Joseph is searching for a place to stay and Mary's about ready to give birth and all the tension of that and the innkeeper apparently turns them away and some kindly man pointed them towards a stable, possibly a cave. They were there and the days were completed for her to give birth. Nine months was up. Absolutely nothing is said here about the details, but let me suggest some things that I don't think stretch it too far here. Even though Mary and Joseph understood God's hand on this and his hand on them, this was still a young couple who had taken a long, dangerous journey. They were far away from home. They were totally on their own. They felt all the emotions. They felt and experienced all the trepidations that came along with all of that. And Joseph would have been greatly concerned. He would have been nervous about the whole trip and this whole childbirth thing and worried about Mary and the baby with no one to help them with no one to support them. But Joseph's concern would have been a godly concern who would have been it would have been part of who he was and why God chose him to rear the son of God. Joseph was greatly concerned. But Joseph would also probably been beside himself with curiosity. The God-man, the Messiah, was about to be born. Joseph must have wondered what this baby would look like. You know, and during the labor, Joseph held Mary's hand and wiped her forehead with a cool cloth. He supported her during the pain, the pain, and the pain. As his dear young wife spent hours in labor in a place that offered no comforts. No midwives. Mary's mother wasn't there. Every girl would want her mother there. No family, just a teenage girl and a young husband, alone in a stable. There would have been all the smells of the stable. Manure, acrid straw, as well as one commentator put it, all the smells of poverty and squalor. And finally, at the culmination of the labor. At that glorious moment, she pushes one more time and pushes out the Son of God, and he cried the cry of life. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, Emmanuel, the God of eternity, stepped into time and space. The Lord of immensity, the Lord of omnipresence, was confined to a tiny body. The Son of God, God of very God, fully God, was confined to a human body, about eight pounds in weight, pretty normal, under two feet in length. The God-man who humbled himself and took the form of a servant. The little life came out into the arms of that young father, and they wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a feeding trough. The cloth would have been narrow strips of cloth, swaddling clothes, as the King James Version calls it. They were commonly used to wrap a body for burial, and they were commonly used to wrap a newborn baby. Mary, like all new mothers, would have counted his fingers, wiped them clean the best she could in the firelight, and each and wrapped each of his little arms and his legs with strips of cloth, mummy-like, and she laid him in a feeding trough. No child born into the world that night seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. Our conclusion, if we need to make it here, would likely be how sad, how pathetic, how unworthy of Israel's Messiah, the King of the Jews. The incarnation God made flesh displays Divine values, though. By how the most powerful person ever born entered the world in total simplicity and humility. Yet, simplicity and humility has a power, divine power all of its own. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. So, having shown the pathetic physical circumstances of the birth of Jesus, Luke now shows us the spiritual significance of his birth. What his birth means to us and to the world. And so we see this beginning at verse 8 of Luke chapter 2, where we see the angelic announcement in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in their fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Mary and Joseph were, a near, uh, were nearby a field in which some shepherds were out tending their flocks. And more than likely, since Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem, these were animals who were raised to be sacrificed in the temple. But once again, we see that God comes to the despised and lowly to the disenfranchised, to the humble. In fact, these country, these shepherds would have been looked down upon by their countrymen. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis that shepherds were considered to be loathsome by the Egyptian. And even in their own country, among the Jews, they were poorly thought of. They were a despised people who were not even allowed to testify in court because nobody thought you could trust a shepherd. Yet in spite of the poor reputation of this class of people, these shepherds seem to have been godly men, godly men. They were men who were looking for the coming of Israel's Messiah, and we assume that they were godly men because all the others of those who were directly informed of the birth of the Messiah in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel were described as godly people. So it seemed to be true of the shepherds as well. As well, And after all, the news of his coming would not be good news of a great joy unless they were seeking him. And plus, we see the haste of these shepherds to the place of Christ's birth. And, and that testifies to their spiritual preparedness and eagerness for the coming of the Messiah. The shepherds were out in their field at night. They were keeping watch over their flocks as they'd done every night. And suddenly an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were literally megaphobos, phobos. which means fear. We get the word phobia from it. Mega phobos. Phobos. Mega fearful. To these humble shepherds, the angel of God appeared in a blaze of glory. And the angel assured them, and he brought them good news and told them of the birth of Messiah, which should be a cause of great joy for all the people. And by this, the angel meant for all people, all the nations, all the peoples, not just Israel, would benefit from his birth. And suddenly the angel is joined by a host of of angels, an army, literally, of angels singing a song of peace. And concerning the multitude of heavenly hosts, Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes of Wheaton Bible Church suggests that not just a few hundred angels showed up, not just a few thousand, but the sky was filled from horizon to horizon with angels. He suggests that every angel of heaven would want to be present for this greatest announcement in the universe. And they lifted their voices to God and it was in cosmic stereo, it was in symphony. These messengers of God were announcing the long-awaited sunrise from on high. And the book of Job records that at the creation of the world, the morning stars, the angels, sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And once again here at the birth of the God-man they joined their voices at the greatest news of all, the birth of the Savior. And here was the divine confirmation of the angelic Announcement: The angels had promised a sign to the shepherds. This shall be a sign for you. The sign was that they would find the child wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a cattle feeding trough. And this sign was not designed to convince the shepherd of the truth of the angelic announcement. After what they had heard, after what they had seen, the splendor of the angel compounded by the heavenly host, they were fully convinced. They had faith at this point. Rather, the sign was for the purpose of identification. The sign is something that points to something. And so how do you know that you have found the right baby? From Matthew's account of the Bethlehem slaughter, it's apparent that there were a number of babies in Bethlehem at that time. How do you know you found the right one? The sign was the way that they would recognize God's Messiah. You will know him by his swaddling clothes, by his unusual crib. No other child would be found in that setting. And so here we see that the two most pathetic factors in the birth of our Lord, his swaddling clothes and lying in a cattle feeding trough, proved to be the things which set this child apart from all others which identify him to the shepherds. But they do more than this. They also identify the Messiah with the shepherds. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The circumstances of our Lord's birth uniquely identify the Lord Jesus Christ with shepherds. The Lord seemingly had no roof over his head, he had no house to dwell in, and and neither did the shepherds, as we were told here. They slept under the stars as they cared for their flock. Jesus was poor and of no reputation, the scriptures tell us, as were they. And Jesus, who was to be both the sacrificial lamb of God, as well as the good shepherd, identified with these shepherds by being found in a feeding trough. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of our Lord's humiliation, identification with men, even the most humble of men, rejected and despised men. And you've got to love the response of the shepherds. We see it in verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem, them, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to. To us, Now, the shepherds were camped maybe about a mile from the stable, and they took off running. They, they leaped the low Judean rock fences, and they entered the stable huffing and puffing, wide-eyed at what they had seen. Verse 16. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as they laid in the manger. And they immediately announced the good news. Verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which they had been told them about this child. We talk a lot about shepherds and God's grace and the angels appearing to them and gave them the best news in all of history. But I want to take it back now to to Mary and Joseph. What about Mary and Joseph? Did they need the shepherds? Here they are in a stable in that that kind of place, and she has just given birth, and and all of a sudden there's these visitors that come, these shepherds that come. They come to a smelly shepherd, or come to a smelly uh, stable, and they're probably smelly shepherds as well. But did Mary and Joseph need to hear what the shepherds had to say and what they told them? Of course they did. It had been a long journey. No place to stay. Dusty, smelly stable. Childbirth. You know, once before, God had used Elizabeth and her miraculous pregnancy with John to confirm that the child within Mary was indeed the Son of God. And now God uses the statements by the shepherds to once again give confirmation at a time and place where Mary and Joseph need it the most they were right in the center of god's will right where they were supposed to be but god gave glorious confirmation nonetheless why because that's who god is he wants to bring you to that place he wants to bring you to that place where you experience his love You relive the joy that he has for you, where he restores your soul, where he revitalizes your spirit, where he renews your faith, and you go away or remain, having experienced a fresh and invigorating encounter with the living God. Do you think Mary and Joseph didn't need that because they were Mary and Joseph? Or the shepherds didn't need that? They needed that. We all need that. And then in verse 18, we see how the, how the shepherds responded. And here we see the application of how we are to respond as well. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. But all who heard it wondered the things which were told by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God. For all that they had heard and seen just has been told them. The good news of the Christ, the Savior, requires a personal response. The good news requires a personal response. The shepherds did not hear this great news and then sit around discussing it. They didn't send a delegation to the rabbis in Jerusalem to get their view on things. They didn't say, oh, we've always believed these things. After all, we're Jews. We know the scriptures. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Well, thanks for letting us know. Rather, they responded in several definite ways. First of all, there was their response of faith. The response of faith. Now, the text here doesn't explicitly say that the shepherds responded by faith. But it, what it does do is describe their faith. It describes their response of faith. They obviously believed the words of the angel or they wouldn't have left their sheep and gone to Bethlehem. They wanted to see for themselves what the Lord had revealed to them. And what did they see when they got to Bethlehem? Did they see a kingly child arrayed in royal robes in a golden cradle and servants attending him? Did he and his mother have halos over their heads? Not at that point, no. They saw a common couple from Nazareth in a primitive stable with a normal-looking newborn baby. It wasn't exactly the way you would expect God to bring his anointed Savior into the world, but the shepherds viewed this baby with eyes of faith in accordance with the word of God given through the angel. When God reveals Jesus Christ to your soul, You must respond with the eyes of faith. You know, Jesus may not be the kind of Savior you expected. You might have had in mind a Savior who could give you everything you always wanted. Maybe your thoughts about the Savior might not have included birth in a stable, let alone crucifixion on a cross. But this Jesus is God's Savior. And you must personally believe in Him as revealed in the Bible. Secondly, we see the response of proclamation. Verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Verse 10, it was good news of great joy for all the people. For all the people. The shepherds didn't stop to think about how others might respond when they told them about this. Some later, as they told about it, may have raised their eyebrows and said, "Oh, you saw a bunch of angels and you went and saw a carpenter and his wife with a baby in a feeding trough and you think he's the Messiah, huh? Right! (laughs) But that didn't stop these men from relating the story. Once you have seen the Savior with eyes of faith, you cannot stop telling others of the great news. Then there's the response of praise. Verse 20, the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God. When God has taken you from the darkness of your sin and by his grace revealed the Savior to your soul, your heart will be filled with praise and joy. As the Apostle Paul put it in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 11, believers should always be joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light for He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Those who have heard the good news should respond with faith, they respond with proclamation, they respond with praise, and lastly with the shepherds we see the response of endurance. Verse 20 just simply says, the shepherds went back. Went back where? They went back to their sheep. Isn't that kind of a letdown? I would think it would be. After the great things they saw, they went back to the routine job that they had before. As someone put it, they didn't set up tours of Bethlehem. They didn't put on seminars on how to have visions of angels. They went back to their jobs but praising God for his abundant grace to them. They went back to the routine. Chuck Swindoll used to say, you know, the problem with life is that it's just so daily. It's just so daily. It's just so routine. But God doesn't call us to a spectacular, flashy, constantly exciting life. He calls us to believe in the Savior. And then he sends us back to the routine. To learn to rejoice in Him and His great salvation day in and day out. In verse 19, we see Mary's response to the visit by the shepherds. She treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. We see the same response from Mary 12 years later. Turn over to Luke chapter two, second chapter of Luke, still in the 2nd chapter, over to the 48th verse. In the 48th verse of Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph and Jesus had been to Jerusalem, and they'd begun the journey from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. And after they had journeyed a full day with the caravan, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with the caravan. They had left him in Jerusalem. Or the way I like to put it, they had lost the Son of God. (laughs) They lost him. And when they frantically returned to Jerusalem, after a long search of three days, they found the 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to them and and asking them questions. And they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And we pick it up in verse 48 of Luke chapter 2. And when Mary and Joseph saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The same response that Mary had in the stable. She treasured all these things in her heart. She stored it up in her heart. All these things. And there's really a sense here where she kept it to herself. She kept a lot of these things to herself. But what I take this to mean was that Mary lived expectantly. She lived with expectancy throughout Jesus' life. She was alert to the unusual developments as he as he matured, as she was watching for things, as, as Jesus became more and more attuned to his intimate father son relationship with his heavenly father. And she treasured each one of those moments in her heart, anticipating and expecting what she would learn of Jesus. You know, we all need to live with expectancy in our relationship with God, in his son, Jesus Christ. The shepherds went back to their routine. Mary treasured all these things in her heart and they all expected that God would continue to work in their lives, that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and that even in the mundane and the usual or difficult circumstances and, and loss, God would continue to reveal himself and his purposes in new and exciting ways. He'd reveal himself that he is real, that he is engaged in our lives and in those things that we ponder and treasure in our hearts. Through that, we can live differently. We live transformed by the Holy Spirit. And we anticipate what he is planning to do and anticipating what he is going to do in us and through us for his glory. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Fathers, we come into this Christmas week excited and anticipating about celebrating Jesus Christ coming into the world on this Christmas this week, Father. It looks this year a whole lot different than we ever expected or anticipated this time last year. But, Father, we know and realize and recognize that even in our circumstances, whatever they are, whatever we go through, whatever loss we experience, Father, that He is Emmanuel, God with us. And we look forward and anticipate, God, what you are going to show us Of Jesus Christ. This Christmas season. How you're going to reveal Jesus to us. In a new. And refreshing way. That we might go back. Glorifying. And praising God. And for this we pray in Jesus name. Amen.